0: Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. And, and, and I kind of got in the habit of just being quiet and listening to people. This was one of the conversations that I, I, I kind of listened in on and heard, and it it really struck me because it's been a while since I heard, I've heard it before. But they got some people got into this conversation of how do you get saved? Because they were talking about, you know, Aunt Rose, was she saved? Was she not saved? Um, was she a Christian? Was she not Christian? And, you know, she was. As far as I know, we talked about it many times. She, you know, um, a lifelong church member, as far as I know, knew Jesus, talked about Jesus. <clears throat> no doubt she'll be in heaven. But I heard several people talking about, and it all came down to how do you live? And that is what people are going to judge whether or not you are saved or not. What do you do? What are, where are your values? Where do you put your time? Where do you put your money? How do you act? What do you do? And it all comes down to your works. And I, I even, and I've asked this question of people before, uh, back when I was a little more bold and, and actually was curious about what their answer was. Uh, if you ask people, you know, what was it that Jesus did at the cross? What changed from the the Monday morning after the resurrection from the Wednesday before the resurrection. And I've had countless people tell me that the biggest change there was that before the cross and before the resurrection, people were saved by following the law. After the cross, people are now saved by grace through faith. And the first time I heard it, I thought, you know, that's one of those things, and Proverbs talks about it, there's a way that's, that seems good unto man, and that way leads to death. I thought, that sounds good, but man, it's so wrong. <laughs> and lem- let me, uh, um, uh, well, let me just, the, their big thing was he changed how he, being God, was bringing salvation to man. That's what their opinion was. And he changed it in this, I saw this phrase this week written somewhere else, he changed redemption from a law-based salvation to a grace-based salvation. And, and part of the reason people are attracted to that, law-based salvation is very very comfortable, because Paul says in, in Romans, I think it's 2.14, that even people who don't know the Mosaic Law will become a law unto themselves. It's part of the nature of human beings that you will come up with a structure of rules and principles that you run your life by. And normally your do's are things where you have strengths or or yes, that's your strengths and you don't have a lot of don'ts or your don'ts are things that you don't have a hard time resisting. You you very very rarely have don'ts in a weakness area because you don't have a hard time resisting that. You just don't put an emphasis on that. So when, when we talk about law-based salvation, it doesn't matter whether you were a Jew and you're talking about the Mosaic law or you're a Gentile and you just become a law unto yourself. Same thing. But, but this is the problem with that. If you go to Romans um, chapter 3, this is Paul and Paul was a Jew. Paul was very familiar with, with the law. And he addressed this in Romans chapter 3, let's start with um, verse 19. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now remember, in chapter 2, Paul's already said, even if you don't know the Mosaic law, you will come up with a law. And either one of them, if you inadvertently come up with a law that, that goes parallel to God's law, the Mosaic law, that's great, but even if you come up with another one, you're still establishing the principle that there are standards in this world, and you have to live by those standards to please God. But he says this, that he had already stated that, but in 19 he says, um, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the fundamental misunderstanding. Most people, if you ask them about the law, they will tell you, well, the law gives us a standard to live by. That is a partial truth. There's a nugget of truth. It gives you a standard But it gives you a standard that you cannot live up to. In fact, Jesus took it so far as he says, the Mosaic Law says that you shall not commit adultery. I'm telling you that you even look on a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He took it, forget the act. I don't care whether you fulfill the act. If you want to fulfill the act, that's a sign right there. Tells you you have sin in your life and you are a slave to sin. That is the function of the law. Always was, always will be. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. The law was given, and whether it's the Mosaic law or a law unto yourself, it was given so that you will know. I can't accomplish what I need to accomplish. That was its rule. Drop down to uh, verse 30. It says, um, Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, on the basis of their faith, and the uncircumcised by the same faith. Do we therefore nullify the law through faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul states between verse 20 and verse 30, what the point he's trying to make is the law points us to the fact that we cannot meet God's standard. It is impossible. Well, it's not impossible. Jesus did it. And if you can make yourself out equal to Him, you can do it. Only one problem with that. Ain't nobody made it yet. Ain't nobody going to make it yet. Pardon my English, but that's just the dog truth. You cannot fulfill righteousness in and of yourself. So God put the law in to prove to you that you needed a Savior. That's what the Mosaic Law did. Every time you sinned, you had to take some kind of sacrifice, and primarily they were blood sacrifices. You went to the priest and you said, Hey, I did this. I need this covered. And he'd say, Okay, let's take this little innocent lamb, beautiful little white lamb, perfect and stand right here, now let's hold its nose up, and he'd take a sharp knife and he'd slit its throat and hold it up in front of you, excuse me, and let you watch its blood drain out. You'd hear it scream, because they do make noise. Um, A sacrifice of that nature, not quiet, it's not pretty. Modern day um, butchering, much more humane than a blood sacrifice was in the Old Testament. And he did it to point out to you, this is what your sin does. This animal just just died a death to cover your sin. You're a horrible human being. Thanks, God. I really needed that message today. I'm a horrible human being. But it didn't just leave it there. That was the good part. He said there is a way out of this, but since you cannot fulfill this law, how do I get out of this state that I'm in? By faith. For the Old Testament believer, they exercise faith because part of the message of the priest, and it's very rare that they had a teaching priest, you will find there are a couple of places in, um, in the Old Testament, It's I don't remember now, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, in, in the historical books there, where it talks about there was no teaching priest at that time. And that's when they got off. A teaching priest was someone who didn't just go through the motions, make the sacrifice, and get your sin covered. He explained to you while he was doing it, your sin caused this and there's only one way out of this sin and that's there is one coming. And at some point there's going to be a Messiah come. His blood will be shed. And when His blood is shed... Sin will be dealt with once and for all. And if you put faith in that Messiah that's going to come, He will deliver you out of this, the, the, the penalty. And in fact, He is using this animal sacrifice to deliver you out of that penalty of sin right now. They, but those Old Testament saints, you go over to Hebrews chapter 11 and read it. They died never having seen the promise fulfilled. Why? Because the Messiah hadn't come. They were believing in a Messiah down the road. For us, the great news is the Messiah has come. The law gives us a knowledge that we have to have a Savior, and then the good news says the Savior has come. He did shed His blood, and He has forgiven our sins. But the other conversations I heard this week was, and <clears throat> you hear this you know, occasionally too, Um, people will say, well, yeah, I got saved and now I'm doing my best to live the life, but you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, which is a person's way of saying, I have to sin. I can't help but sin. And I have very little power at all to prevent myself from sinning. Jesus forgave my sins But when it comes to living out this Christian walk, I don't have a lot of weapons, you know. We just all fall short of the glory of God. Well, again, there's a nugget of truth there. The the problem with that little nugget, though, it's hard to live in victory. It's very hard to live in victory because you've just assigned yourself that you cannot make it. If I'm a sinner just saved by grace, my sins are forgiven, and someday, you know, when I die, if I've exercised faith, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to have victory. You know the the, the old hymn: uh, We're going to um, uh, cross the Jordan River and make it into the Promised Land. The Promised Land is heaven, where we have no more tears and we have no more enemies. Only when I look back at Old Testament history, when they crossed the Jordan River, that's when they faced the giants. That's when they faced their battles. There's no, the Jordan River doesn't represent getting to heaven. The Jordan River represents when a person finally, a Christian, finally comes to the realization that I'm in this life, it's me and Jesus, but we've got some some battles to fight. But Jesus has already said, don't fear. I'm giving you the land. In fact, he didn't say, I'm giving you the land. He said, I have given you the land. Oh, sure, there's a few giants. But what are they? Just keep faith. You've already won the victory, and you're looking at it thinking, "Well, I don't feel very victorious." That's why it's a faith. You have to believe it. So it it when Jesus died, um, he didn't just bring us into a grace based salvation. The the great thing, well, he did bring us into a grace. Uh, Based salvation, that grace-based salvation had been in place all along. He just finally fulfilled the law and made the sacrifice so that it wasn't just a sac- or a, a promise of, of salvation to come, it was a promise that we now can walk in that salvation and walk in that victory. And and it and, and this is the thing: He brought or a grace-based salvation brought us something much more radical than just being saved by grace. Something much more radical than just my sins have been forgiven. I'm no longer a sinner saved by grace. I was a sinner. Now I'm saved by grace and I'm a saint. Well, brother, you just think you never sinned? Oh, I didn't say that. That's the nugget of truth in I'm a sinner saved by grace. I still fall short. I try, I aim for that mark, I never, I, I never get it exactly right. I never hit the bullseye perfectly. Not capable of doing that in and of my own flesh. But the great news is that's not what, what did. God when when he when Jesus came and, and resurrected, he conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave, but he also, when he came out, We've seen it before in, in Ephesians and in, in Colossians. He raised me up to sit with Him in heavenly places when He sat down on heaven's throne. He not only delivered me from these, but He has equipped me. And that is the big difference. I have the equipping now to live the faithful Christian walk. Even though I don't do it perfectly, I fall short, I you know, Sometimes you just you get tired. I'll give you a perfect example. I felt I felt Charles prayers this week while we were, were doing all the things. Monday we had the funeral. Got back to my um excuse me. Got back to my my sister's house. We were staying with them. I'm exhausted. I went to bed. It's like I'm I'm just Good night, everybody, leave me alone, gonna go to sleep. Well, Gina's got time with her sister. What do sisters do when they get time? They sit in the living room and they talk. Well, my brother-in-law, bless his heart, he's, his job right now, he's working 16 hour days, seven days a week. So he gets up at 2.30, he's in his truck heading to work at three. Well, I heard him wake up at 2.30 and I had about four or five hours sleep in by then, so I pop out of bed, it's like, wow, okay, it's morning. I'm ready to go. And I walked to the living room and Gina and her sister are sitting there talking and they're both about, their eyes are about half-masked. And Gina said, well, I think it's time I need to go to bed. And I said, nah, I don't think so. I think it's time that we went home. So my poor wife, we loaded the car up. I said, you can sit over there in the pasture side and go, you can have a two-hour nap on the way home, go to bed when you get home. Well, there is a point here and it, it, it comes down to you do come up short. On the way home, I had some idiot pull up and tailgate me for about three miles. And oh, I was, I was hot. I was reading him the Riot Act. And we finally got out of the, the little wolf pack that the trucks were in. And I got out on my own and, um, you know, pulled over. I, I had enough sense, I'm not going to engage him. I, he, he took off and then he door rode me for about a mile, which I really, I don't like it when people ride right next to me. And finally he took off and when he took off, we're coming up in traffic. I pulled over in the left lane so I can go around this traffic. Well, I know more than pulling behind him and it was probably a little tight, but I'm expecting him to open the gap. You know, he's going faster than me. Well, he he didn't open the gap. He slammed his brakes on and turned his red light on because it was a state policeman who had been tailgating me and pulled over and started to chew me out for tailgating him. And I'm telling you, my flesh was primed. It was ready. This was a 20-something cop. Had to be fresh out of the academy. And, man, the thoughts were on. I, I I had speech after speech after speech I wanted, and I just sat there and said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, <laughs> and bit my lip. Did I fall short? Oh, yeah, because he, he gave me credit for shutting up, didn't write me a ticket, gave me a warning for something he had just done, which just I'm still a little hot about that one, but in God's eyes, I might as well have just said to him what I wanted to say because in my heart... <laughs> I was like the little boy that you know sat up in the back seat and and he wouldn't sit down and Dad finally pulled him down gave him a spanking and the kid looked up and he said Well I'm sitting on the outside but on the inside I'm still standing up. <laughs> on the inside I was reading this guy this kid the Riot Act. What does God look at? God looks at my heart. Well does that mean you know? Well brother obviously you're not saved. No I was tired I was irritable but I at least had enough sense to keep my mouth shut. So God gives us, he He does forgive us, but he also gives us the gifting to overcome that. And, and to be honest with you, I even just talking about it, my emotion, I can get all worked up and I can, I can, you know, I start relating the story and suddenly I'm ready to just, you know, in my mind, I'm ready to pull him back out of that cage, smack him around a little bit, and stick him back in that, I'm still ticked off at you cage. <clears throat> I need to, but, but God helps. And he says, you can't, you can't hold that against that guy. What if he was wrong? My opinion, he was. In his opinion, I was. Who's right? Both of us. Who's wrong? Both of us. You just need to let it go. Well, God has given me the ability to let that go because he doesn't just save me by forgiving my sins, he saves me by translating me out of that old nature into a new nature. Our problem is sometimes as Christians, we want to get we want to have grace by faith in our salvation. But then we want to work out our, our salvation by works. Paul addressed that, Galatians chapter um, 3. <clears throat> and this was a, a pretty strong rebuke from Paul to the church at Galatia. He said this, and he's going through them, and, and, and in Galatia, this Galatia was a region in, in Greece, When Paul left this region to go off and minister other places, there were Judaizers that came in. They were Jewish Christians who came into to to, um, that region and started going to the churches Paul had founded and said, well, you know, we know Brother Paul. Paul's a great pastor. He's a great teacher. But let us take you a little deeper. Paul talked about, you know, you're Gentiles and you can come into the kingdom and be part of the new man. But you really need to become a Jew to be fully participant in the things of God. You need to follow the Mosaic Law. You need to follow the dietary laws. You need to follow the law of circumcision. You need to do all this list of stuff to be a spiritual Christian. Do we have that today? Yeah. And we each have our own little private list of what it means, what actions I have to take to be a spiritual Christian. And when I do my list, I feel pretty good about myself. When I don't do my list, oh Lord, am I even saved? You know, you, you, your emotions run the gamut, but Paul addressed it. He said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, he said, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? His question is, how did you start this salvation experience? Did you, did you work real hard to make yourself pleasing to God? And then when you got yourself pleasing to God, you came and said, okay, God, I got myself cleaned up. I'm ready to come in. Or did you come to God like the, the, the prayer, the, the man who, that Jesus observed in the temple, who, you know, beat on his chest and said, oh, God, Forgive me, I'm a sinner. God's pattern is you come to Him dirty, filthy, lost, knowing there's nothing good inside you, and you say, and yet, in spite of all that, I know that you love me, and you've offered me your salvation. You have offered me a relationship with you, and I declare that I'm in relationship with you. I believe that I have a relationship with you. I believe that you are my Savior. And when you do it, let me ask you the same thing Paul asked you. Where's your evidence that you are a Christian when you first did that? What good deed had you done to prove that you were worthy of God's love? And the answer is you have none. 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 You come on your knees, you come saying, God, I I just cannot do this, but you said that you have accepted me and you offer me a relationship with you and I'm taking it. I'm taking you up on your offer. And it's purely an act of faith. It's nothing that within you that you have any evidence that it's true. It's all based on what you've either read in the Word or somebody's told you about what's in the Word, and you just accept it. And your evidence is totally contrary to what you actually have been living. <clears throat> and unless you're very different from most people I know, the day after you get saved, your lifestyle hasn't changed a great deal. The sins and the weaknesses you had the day before you got saved are the same ones you have the day after you get saved. And suddenly you have to start trying to live up to the relationship that he's already given you. Hopefully you'll have somebody come along and say, hey, that old you's dead and gone. Now you're brand new. You're seated with him in heavenly places. Your natural mind will say, say what? I'm what? I'm where? I don't understand that. You don't have to understand it. Just accept it. Put faith in it. And then watch God start to clean you up. And he doesn't clean you up by telling you stop doing all these things. He cleans you up by taking the desire away from or the desire to do the wrong things and putting a desire in you to do the right things. Amen. Pigs want to wallow in the mud because they're hot and uncomfortable. That's just a fact. You take the hot and uncomfortable away from them, they quit wallowing in the mud. They're some of the cleanest animals you'll ever be around. But when they get hot and they can't sweat, They'll do anything to cool off. Sinners will go wallow in the mud to dull the pain. They'll do drugs. They'll do alcohol. They'll get angry. They'll lash out. Why? Because they're hurting and they're lost and they're scared. And they do all these things to distract themselves from the knowledge that I have no control over my life. And if I die today, man, I'm in hell. And I know it. Believers don't deal with that. They may go wallow in it because just normally out of force of habit. That's just how I've always lived. And then suddenly if you read your Bible or you come to church and you hear lessons, it's like you don't have to go do that anymore. I don't? Okay. And suddenly the pain's gone. Now, you may have to struggle a little bit, especially if you have physical addictions. It may take something to overcome them. It may take some perseverance. It may take some, some willpower. But God's ready to equip you to do all of this. Let's look at some of the equippings that he gives us. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. This is Paul talking about us. He says, For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head over all principality and power. Paul says, look at Jesus. He is the complete Godhead. And look at yourself. You're complete in Him. What's He mean? He means the Godhead resides within you. We say all the time, well, I'm, I, I've got the Holy Spirit living on, in the inside of me. That's true. But when it comes right down to it, when you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit because you can't separate those three. You've got the Godhead. The same God that spoke and the universe sprang into existence lives on the inside of you right now. Amen? Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. He's saying right there, the God that brought Jesus out of the, out of the grave, that, brought, that, that set Him at the right hand of the Father, will help you complete, or makes you complete in every good work to do His will. The heart cry of every Christian ought to be, I want to do God's will. If, if, if that is your pursuit, the things of this world become very small. You don't have to worry about you know, uh, getting drunk or, or committing adultery or committing murder or robbing banks when your full-time activity is pursuing God's will. You're too busy doing what's good to think about doing what's wrong. You know, the old, the old adage idle hands are the devil's um, um, workshop. Um, you keep people busy, they don't have time to do things. Now, that, that takes care that helps with your actions. Where God helps is He changes your heart. Uh, look at Philippians 1 6. This goes back to what Paul said in, in, in Galatians 3. Um, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, the hearing by faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you're now being made perfect by the flesh? Well, in, in Philippians 1:6, Paul said this: I am confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God started this thing with by putting you putting your faith in his Messiah. He will continue it. He started the work. He is faithful to complete it until Jesus comes back. It doesn't just fall on me. It's not just my responsibility. In fact, it's never my responsibility to clean me up. It's my responsibility to listen to the Father, what He says to me personally and what He says to me corporately through His written word, and then do my best to follow that. And if I follow that, then He will continue that work within me. He does it primarily, and this is the the last scripture on this one, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And this is a very familiar scripture. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable, meaning this is what it will do. To be profitable means there's an action out here that it's going to accomplish. It's profitable for doctrine, that means for what you believe, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that can also, that's mankind, not just male, be male or female, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work? Your equipping is right here in this book. You can never believe for something you don't know. I heard it at Rhema constantly. Faith begins where the will of God is known. You can only have faith for something when you know this is God's will for me. When you you are certain about what God's will is for you, faith is not hard. Faith is the easiest thing in the world. Once you're certain of God's will. Where it becomes difficult is when you're not sure if this is God's will for you or not. That only comes by knowledge of the word. It only comes by digging. And I'll be honest with you, where you need to dig as Christians is from Romans chapter 1 through the end of Jude. That's our primary feeding ground because that was written to us. Book of Acts describes what goes on in the church, in the church age. It gives us a good pattern to what we ought to be seeing in our lives. Four Gospels are written to people that need to get saved. Romans through Jude tells us where we live every day. That's our daily life. Those books, those, and it's primarily Paul. Now, what does it mean? to be complete in Him, and to be equipped for every good work. I want to look just at a couple of these, and then we're, we're going to wrap this up. First thing that He does, He starts at the beginning. He recreates you as a new man when you get saved. That's the work of faith that Paul talked about in Galatians. Proof is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things became new. When you first put your faith in the knowledge that Jesus was your Savior, and you said, I believe that, I believe I'm a Christian, you had no natural evidence of it, you just put your assertion into that biblical fact. God, at that moment, your old man, your old spirit man who was wed to to sin, who was a slave to sin, who could not help but sin. That old man died and God recreated you a brand new spirit, brand new person, had never existed before in time or in anywhere else. You were brand new that time and you, you existed completely sinless. And you, that existence is eternal. It does not change. On the inside, in your spirit man... You stand united with the Holy Spirit. When it says the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you, He resides in His join and makes His Spirit one with your spirit. That's why John says in in, in the the epistle of John, he said, if you are in Him, you cannot sin. Well, I I thought you just said you sin all the time. My flesh sins, my mind sins, but the real me, the eternal me, The me on the inside is joined and intimately mixed in with the the Holy Spirit and with the Father and with the Son. Jesus sat on the earth and He said, the Father and I are one. To the point of you see me, you see the Father. (coughs) Had no problem identifying Himself with Father God. We as Christians should have the same boldness to say you see the real me on the inside. Now, sometimes you have a hard time seeing the real me on the inside because of my flesh and because of my mind, because my flesh and my mind are sometimes very representative of my by my mouth. But when you can get a glimpse of the a glimpse of the real me on the inside, that real me is connected and intimately uh, uh, one with the Holy Spirit, which makes me intimately connected and whole, and one with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's God in me. And that is the real me. My fleshly body, it's going to die someday, go back to the worms. My mind, my will and my emotions, that's my battleground. That's where I need to cross the Jordan River and tell my brain, tell my way of thinking, you need to change. That's where my giants exist. My giants aren't out here. Sometimes we think our giants are, are all the situations we face in the world. It's the sin in our society. It's the fact that... that you know, our society, there, there's part of the, the political movement in, in, in our country today that says, it's our, in fact, it's one of our major political parties, says the stated goal of our party is to keep bo- abortion legal up through and until the ni- end of the ninth month. At any point, you can abort a baby, right up to the second they draw their first breath. That's not a giant I'm supposed to fight. Now, is that evil? that is clearly evil and i will fight it in the political realm with all of my breath and with all of my votes you know i'm from eastern kentucky our rule is vote often vote early and vote often that's a joke y'all can laugh i do have maybe have a political battle to fight but that's not part of my personal warfare the only way I can change that political um, uh, reality, that I've got a whole wave movement in my country that's moving to, to not only promote unrighteousness, but or not to just promote it, but to exalt it in every area. The only way I can change that movement is to change the hearts of those people. And the only hope I have of changing the hearts of those people is to introduce them to Jesus. Otherwise it can't. Now, I will fight hard politically to keep them from being in power so they can enact laws to bring that about. I'm going to do everything I can to do that. But let's face it, I don't have a lot of political power. I don't have TV crews camping on my doorstep to interview me and see what my thought is on, you know, what's my opinion on the thing you know they people when i express my opinion people ignore it by the millions but i do have a personal battle the personal battle is i have to to my my giant in that situation is to get past the evil of their policy to see the need of the people that are promoting the policy that's not easy because I'll be honest with you, with my history of burying children, when you start talking about killing kids, boom, my flesh rises up. I'm ready to go get my, you know, get my gun, stand a watch, and start shooting people. They, you know, they deserve to die. Well, that's my flesh. That's not reality. That old man that would have wanted to just go grab a gun and shoot somebody, he's no longer here. He's dead. He's gone. And I have to fight the battle to keep my mind straight, so hopefully I can reach some of those. Reach enough of them, maybe I can change the policy. But the only thing, and I'll be, let me just be flat the only, only possible salvation for our nation is revival. It's the only way, our country, if you are putting your faith in the Democratic Party, if you are putting your faith in the Republican Party, or the Libertarian Party, or the Green Party, you're going to fail, because they will all fail you. In fact, one of the most terrifying words that God ever said to a nation, and I pray God He's not saying it to us, is, I'm going to turn them over to their desires. If he does that to us, we're sunk. But I'm believing that he's not turning us over to that because I'm still praying for revival. Because this is still my country. And if nobody else is going to pray it, and I know I'm not alone in this, I know Jesus is the only answer. He's the only way this country's ever going to get back to its roots, to righteousness. And, and when I say roots, that was roots of our leadership. General public, I don't know that we've ever been terribly righteous in this country, but God started it by recreating us, the, and, and these are not in any particular order, but one of the greatest things that he's equipped us with, go to Ephesians, you can go two places, Ephesians five seventeen through 19, and then Colossians 1, 9. Let's read Colossians 1, nine first. first. This is Paul praying, this is one of Paul's prayers, he said, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, heard what? Heard of their faith and their love for one another. He said, Do not cease to pray for you and do ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I want you to note that Paul's praying for us individually. He was praying for the church at Colossae, but he put it in there. We can tap into this same promise to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then go to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Paul's talking about behavior here. He says, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He gives us a comparison in that part between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And he says the whole point of that is to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, let me go back, and, and it's just because it's, it's in the current thing. Just recently, it was, it was released... Somebody, who knows, they say it was the Russians, who knows who it was, um, hacked into the Democratic National Convention or Democratic National Committee's email base, and stole all their emails. Um, not long before that, you know, they, they broke into the Office of Management and Budget. So I got a notice on that one because I've worked with the federal government in the past, and I got a little nice little notice from Uncle Sam that said, "Oh, by the way, sorry." But your social security number, your address, all of your personal information is now out because the hackers broke in and we just didn't have security to stop them. So it's all out there now. Um, You might want to watch your back on the internet. It's like, gee, thanks. That helped that. You can go through um, situation after situation after situation where countries, powers to be, just hackers just wanting to, you know, mess things up. Are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to get in and steal information to figure out what their enemies—some of this is Russia, some is China, some is our friends—we do the same thing. We we have a national security agency that spends hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars every year, trying to figure out what are the plans of the Russians and the Chinese and even some of our allies. What are their military plans? It is greatly important to our friends and our enemies to know what our will is and for us to know what their will is. And right here we have two scriptures where the God of the universe has thrown His arms open and said, come on in, I want to share with you what my will for your life and for this earth and for this existence is. He wants us to know His will. It doesn't cost us a dime. He's not hiding emails. My little, I'm not going to go very far in that. He's an open book. I have nothing to hide. Come in. I want to show you everything I have planned for you. That is such a privilege for us. And most people, it is so mind-boggling beyond what they could believe, they just, it, it overwhelms it. It's like, well, I can't know God's will for me. Well, you, can, you can't know it with that attitude. But when he says, I want you to know my will for you, that's probably something you ought to be trying to figure out. Amen? Amen? So that's part of the equipment, part of the, the equipping. The other big thing that he says is he calls us to identify with our new status of being a new creation rather than our old status of being a sinner. A couple of different scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 14. <coughs> verse 12 he says, For as the body is one, and has many members, but all the members of that, of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. We are in Christ. So as a group, we are the body of Christ. We are God's, we are Jesus' hands, His mouthpiece, His feet in this world. Jesus physically is not on the earth today, but He is represented in this earth today, by us individually and by us corporately. We are the body of Christ. But let's go on. What's he say? Verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. There are lots of us in the body of Christ, and we all have a part in playing out His will. That's why it is so important for us to know His will. But we also have to learn to start identifying ourselves, not as the old man we used to be, but as the new creation that God has now made us. Because when you get ready to go lay hands on somebody who has cancer, you become really intimately familiar with how, you're weak, how weak you are. Well, I'm supposed to lay hands on them and tell them that they're going to recover? What right do I have that? Who am I? You're the hands of Jesus. And he said in Mark uh, chapter 16 that in my name they will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. Well, brother, I just don't see how that works. Don't have to understand it. I guarantee you every one of us is going to go out in our cars today. We're going to put a key in that Glock, turn the, the key and start the car... I would be willing to bet there ain't, there ain't three people in this room that understand the physics and the chemistry behind the, how that car runs. Does that mean we're all stuck? We're going to have to walk home? No. You do things all the time you don't understand. You're going to go home, turn your TV on today, and watch some TV. Do you understand how that TV gets its signals? How that digital signal comes in and gets interpreted by a computer program And and all those little pixels appear on your screen and you actually see what looks like people and you hear what you think are voices. Remember, there are no people in that little box. They don't exist. The real people are somewhere else. You go home watch the Olympics today. Most of those kids did their things last night and we're just seeing them today, but that's not them on the screen. Well, I don't understand how that works. won't keep you from watching the program. You may not understand how this can work, but if God says it's my will for you to lay hands on the sick and tell them you're going to recover, then do it and believe it. Well, brother, what if they don't? What if they do? What if you have the audacity to do what God tells you and God shows up in His power and does a miracle for somebody? Well, I don't want to get my head blown up. Don't worry about it. God can keep you humble. But what if they get saved? What if they get healed? It's not about you. It's about the person who has the need. Go to Colossians three chapter or verse nine and 11. This is, again, our, our identifying with our status as a new creation. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Let me translate that into a modern speech. He said, first of all, in in verse 10, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. You're going into the Word, finding out what what the Bible says about you, and saying, I'm going to identify with what the Bible says about me, not what I think about me. And then he gives you your status. When he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, he means you, you can forget about nationalities. This is not being about being an American church. Part of the biggest problem we have is we look at ourselves as an American church and the church has nothing to do with being American or non-American. In fact, one of the biggest revivals going on in the world today is happening in China and most people know nothing about it because there's not a TV crew there filming it. But they are getting born again by the millions. Why? Because God showed up and they're having a revival. People prayed. People sought it. They believed for it and God said, let's go. I got some people that will believe me. I'm willing to show up and let's have at it. It can happen here too. He says, neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. You either raised in church or you were raised as a heathen. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with who you are today. You could have been, you know, you. when I went to church as a kid, I was part of the the... Southern Baptist Church, and if you had perfect attendance in Sunday school, you got a little uh, badge. And boy, we had some guys, some, some men that they on their suits, they had badges. I mean, they looked like the old Soviet uh, soldiers. They had every medal they ever could have gotten plastered on their suits. And these guys had their perfect attendance buttons all the way down here. Well, that's pretty religious. Great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being regular to church. It's a whole lot better than being irregular to church. But that doesn't mean anything to God. He doesn't care whether you're religious or not religious. He doesn't care if you're sophisticated or unsophisticated. When it says barbarian or Scythian, does that mean that you speak Greek or you don't? Are you educated or uneducated? He could care less. Slave or free, do you work for the man or are you the man? He could care less. Doesn't matter to God. The only thing that matters to him is Christ is all and in all. Are you in Him and is He in you? And if you're in Him and He's in you, that's all He cares about. And then um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26-29 through 29 says something very similar here, but he adds a little something at the, at the tail that I want to finish up with. He says, "...for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and this is a great and. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The other great equipping He's given us is He's called us to an inheritance. He's given us the inheritance of Abraham. Which means everything that Jesus inherited, because Jesus, I'm, I'm going through this right now. Uh, I mentioned again, earlier Mark 16, verse 17 through 18, it says where Jesus said, In my name you will cast out demons, you'll speak with new tongues, you'll take up servants, and if they drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Do you know what that describes? That describes power of attorney. I'm in charge. I'm the trustee of my my dad and my stepmom's estate. As long as my dad and stepmom were alive, I had no power. When my dad died, all the power fell to my stepmom. She was the trustee of the estate and she made all the decisions. But now that she's gone, she has a bank account. She has a checking account. She has life insurance. And anything that needs to get done, instead of signing her name, I sign my name, P-O-A, power of attorney. My name goes on there, and it's just as if she said, and my father said, this is my will. They have given me the ability to exercise anything in my judgment that they need, I can do it in their name. That's exactly what Jesus has done. When He says, in My name, you're going to do these? He said, I've given you power of attorney. You go sign your name to it and you say, in the name of Jesus, I have power of attorney. Now, that power of attorney is limited because I don't have authority over another man or another woman, another person's spirit, their their decisions are not their decisions. But I have absolute authority over the devil. If I see the devil attacking my pastor, I have absolute authority to say, "You take your hands off and you back up, buster. And he has to listen. Why? Because I have all the power of heaven standing behind me. You walk up to the devil nose to nose. I had a student one time decide he was going to get frisky with me. And I corrected him for something and he did one of these jobs. He stepped into me and put his nose about an inch from my nose. And you know what I did? I closed that, that nose till our noses were touching. And I looked him right square in the face and I said, if you're sealing Sparky, go on, bud. But just remember, it's not me that's standing here. There's every teacher in this building plus every cop we can get a hold of. If it takes the whole city, I'll have you in cuffs and I'll have you down if you don't do what I tell you to do right now and do it fast. He bought it. Thank God I didn't want to have to fight him. But when the devil comes at me, and wants to stick his nose up in my business, gets right nose to nose, and he says, you're nothing. I just close the gap. I say, no, in the name of Jesus. And when you see him turn and flee, it's not because you're something. What you can't see is behind you, there's about a dozen angels just pulled their swords out and said, are you going to listen or not? Because if you're not, we're coming after you. And he sees them and behind them he sees the Holy Spirit of God and he sees Jesus starting to get one leg under him on that throne saying, if I have to come up off his throne, I will. And it's just like when dad said, don't make me come in there. You did not want to cross that bridge. Because when dad came in there, things changed and they changed fast. That's what the devil responds to. He's given us inheritance. And let's close with, with these two verses. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. This was the, Paul, when he first got called, he went out into the wilderness, Jesus met with him and taught him. And then he came back to, to the powers to be in Jerusalem and Peter said, yes, Paul, we accept that you are now a Christian and you're not persecuting the church, but we're not real sure that we want you hanging around here, you know, I'm accepting you, but going to have to be at arm's length for a while, prove yourself. So Barnabas, being son of encouragement, grabbed Paul, took him to Tarsus, and in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says this, When he had found him, meaning Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Paul took the first year of his ministry, sat down with a little church. Oh, how I would have loved to spend a year in that church. And at this church was the first time that believers got a true revelation of who they were in Christ to the point that the public looked at these people and said, They're little Christs. That's what Christians means. This is These people, when they get up and they speak, it's not them speaking, it's Jesus speaking. It's Jesus doing these things. God is in this house. Would to God that we could say that about our lives. And then verse, or Acts 20, verse 32. This is Paul. <coughs> Paul thought he was heading to Jerusalem, going to die. And he's talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. This was a church where, where he spent more time and poured, even poured more time and energy into them than he did in the church at Antioch. And his last words to them, in his mind, I think I'm going off going to die. These are, his, he said, so now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Paul's last words, he thought, to his dear friends are, I'm giving you over to God and to the Word. There are two things that we need to put ourselves in remembrance. We started this journey by faith. We're going to end it in faith. And between, it's all faith. It's not works of the law. I can't work hard enough to clean myself up, whether I'm saved or unsaved. It's by faith in His Word. But it's not me just doing it. He's called me. He's equipped me. He's given me His Spirit. He recreated me. He set me on the throne with Him in heavenly places. And He's given me inheritance and He's given me power of attorney to His name. And said, if you need to write a check, write it, put your name on there. And He didn't say put my name on there. That's the thing that that really dawned on me this week. When I sign those checks, when I have to go pay her bills, I don't put Rosemarie Roberts by John Roberts. I just signed John Roberts POA. Has the same power under the law as her signing it or my father signing it. That's what Jesus has done. He said, you put your name on there. But then you put a little note. It's power of attorney. It's you, but you're doing it in my stead. When you do it, I'll put the full force of heaven behind you. We can only do that, though, when we know His will and when we're pursuing His will and we're not pursuing our own flesh. Amen? But the great news is, it's all ours. He's given it to us. We can do that because He has given, recreated us, given His Spirit, given His anointing, given His name. And he says, go. Conquer the land. Conquer the giants in your land. And then when you, when you get sufficiently established, reach out and pull somebody else up. Help them. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.